let me know you are not. I think I am going to go to that. <laughs> I was going to try this little. Is that okay? Got it? Okay, thank you. Good evening. How is everyone? Is everyone, well, I didn't hear that. I'm going to have to ask that again. How is everyone? Doing great. That's good. Anyone get caught in traffic on the way here tonight? That's why I just walked in, if you didn't know, just a few minutes ago. The Buckland Bridge is a place that tries your salvation. <laughs> Sometimes, maybe not your salvation, but your but your walk. Gets <laughs> a little frustrating out there, but I was uh, I, I I asked the Lord. I say this sincerely for peace and just give me peace and don't let me get frustrated. I know I left in plenty of time to be here, but they had some little little incident or something going on and uh, took a little longer, but I'm here, so I'm very happy to be here and privileged to be here as always to share some things and thank you for being here. You know, I uh, pastor spoke Sunday, for those of you that were here on, uh, you know, a, sermon that had to do with the wise men and, and other things, of course, but I started reading that second chapter of uh, Matthew, and I, so I just began to think about it, and I, uh, you know, it was just something interesting to me. I had some other thoughts that I was uh, working out uh, and, and praying about maybe to share this evening, and then I started looking at this, and I, I read uh, a few things and just did a little research and came across an article that was gave me a, just something that uh, I believe resonated with me, and I felt like I wanted to share some of that with you tonight about just a different way of looking at this Christmas story that, that you find in the second chapter of Matthew, and so I wanted to just go through that with you um, tonight, and we have a slide, I think, that first one, that, yeah, there it is, so I, you know, have, how many people have ever seen the movie Back to the Future? It's okay if you have. I mean, we we can go to movies now. <laughs> now it's it's a movie that there's a song called "The Power of Love," and I was gonna. There's this clip in it that's really funny. I thought I tried to find it, but I didn't have enough time. But this is this is uh, a thing that I believe really is for me anyway. Um, a, a, such an important part of the walk that I execute every day in my life, that I take on every day. Of not only is it warfare and things that we battle against, but it's also living and trying to really uh, find my identity and, and, and be who I am in Christ. And I believe that I find that when I understand that his love is not just love that we talk about. And there's nothing wrong with those things. And you say, well, God loves you. Oh, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. He loves me. I love him. That's great. There's nothing wrong. You could say that on the hour every hour. And you could never say it enough, just reinforcing that truth to you. But there's something about the, the love of God that isn't to me when I'm, as I try to just wrap myself around this and, and my identity, that is, is not just that there's love, but the love that he has contains power. It contains power for us to live our life. It contains power for us to operate in a way that we can be most effective for him. It's not just a love that is something that he gave to us freely, which he did, and that's wonderful. 
but it's got power with it. That, that, that love that he gives us contains so much that we can utilize if we can really wrap ourselves around. And I say use that term because there's a place in this I'm going to talk about later that just that, that wrapping around, that idea of wrapping it around it and finding your identity in the love of Christ and in the love of God our Father. So anyway, the Christmas story, we all know, you know, what if we read the, the second chapter of Matthew and other places where it's recorded, it's one of the most beautiful stories just in terms of story that's ever been told. Talking about the first few months of the life of the baby Jesus, um, but in that second chapter, and this is the article that I was reading that just really kind of sparked this and gave me some interest in looking into it further, is filled with a lot of contrast and a lot of sharp differences of things that we find even in our world today. It has the story of royalty and power and affluence, and it has the story of rags and uh, poverty, really, and uh, finding yourself at the lowest part of the uh, socioeconomic scale that we found back in, in the days of Jesus' birth. And if you look at the idea of where Jesus was born, I know we've all talked about it. We've seen it. We've seen live nativity scenes and all these kind of things. But I just sort of I closed my eyes, and I'm not going to ask you to do that, but just think from a, about how far down if, if you were one of these people that said, you know, well, I, you know, I had to hit rock bottom. I, Joseph and Mary had to feel like they had hit rock bottom when they were going to, to, to Bethlehem. Don't you think? I mean, they couldn't find a room to stay in, so they had to stay in a stable. Now, I don't know how many people have ever been in a stable. A lot of probably people here in Clay County may have. A lot of horses. Uh, you. I wasn't raised on a farm, and I, I, I'm from the south, and proudly so, but I wouldn't consider myself necessarily a country boy, as they say, but I'm certainly a southerner. But I tell you, every time I've walked in a stable, it's an acquired scent, if you will. It's not something that's for everybody. And I just always felt like, you know, just the aroma of that had to be so pungent or offensive. And here, this is where Jesus is going to be born. I think there's a reason for all that. But I thought about it. I just thought, you know, here they are. Joseph and Mary were, again, if you look at it in the social aspect of it, they were, uh, they were, or Mary was accused of some pretty severe things. Most people thought that she had had an affair or had some type of adulterous relationship or something where it was a, a infidelity of uh of that, and, and now you can imagine um, at your workplace or even here in this church, despite our best effort, if people walk in under that kind of a cloud of suspicion or rumor or even truth behind it, how do we look at people like that? I'm not saying as we should, but I mean, think about it for a minute. Let's be honest. I mean, that's a that's something that really is a, is, is frowned upon. Can you imagine nearly 2,000 years ago how people looked at that? I mean, they had to be looked upon as very much outcast, misfits, if you will. I just think that there was a time where here they are, these people who are outcast in society. They're going to try to find a place to have this baby. And uh, I don't even know. I mean, in some ways, you know, Joseph had to be convinced of the whole fact of what it is that's happening. They can't get a room, and they have to wind up in a stinky 
nasty stable. Now that, so I, all of that I just told you is sort of what I kind of put in my mind to look at where this whole thing started. And then I thought about here's the other side of that in this story in the second chapter of Matthew that talks about King Herod and all that he was. And I'm telling you, there is a wide difference of discrepancy between King Herod and where he was and this story that began of the birth of Jesus in a, in a stable, in a, in a manger in a stable. And so all of those contrasts of philosophies and power and all that's sort of what I want to talk about tonight. So that's just sort of trying to set a, a backdrop for some of the thoughts that I have here. And so what I want to start with is reading from Matthew 2, uh, starting in the first verse, and I think we have them here, so we're going to just, if you would, read along with me together, uh, just, to, just to frame this a little. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now remember that. Herod was troubled. It's a lot more than that, in fact, but that's one of the words that's used. So, uh, so uh, for we saw his star where it rose, and we come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, because it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go! And search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Another important thing. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, I ask you as I bring this word tonight that uh, you would anoint every syllable that's spoken that the things that I've had laid upon my heart would be something that would be brought into this house tonight with your anointing and with power that the Word of God has to help us in our everyday life. And I just ask you for the leading and guidance of your Holy Spirit as we bring this forth in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, so here we are. Now Herod, King Herod, represents all that is evil. And he is the personification of evil. He's selfish. He's, uh, he's a power-hungry individual. He's a person that, that has absolute aspirations for absolute power. His position is everything to him. He, he scratched his way through all of the things
years in his life, history says, to get to a point. And he did that by ruling with, as we say, the iron fist or ruling in a tyrannical way. In fact, um, you know, there's some things about this that I'll talk about in a minute about how Herod actually, you know, acquired his power. But one of the things that he did is that he was very, um, uh, as many people are today, he was very uh, swift to punish people who would challenge his authority. And that's very important to understand. Now, Jesus, on the other side of that, is the perfect, pure, absolute, again, perfect, I don't know that there is a better word, expression of love and purity and grace and mercy and so much more. His name, just his name, but all that happened through his birth and through his life is just the perfect expression of love. So here he is over here, and here is King Herod over here. So there's a contrast, again, that I want to talk about and expand on a little bit here tonight. So now, Herod, again, he is consumed with the lust and the love of power. That's what his whole life is about. He's not the only one that we've seen through history like this. Uh, he hangs on to every element of power that he can, and anyone that challenges that or crosses it will be met with a swift and firm rebuke. And that involves many times harming you, hurting you, or killing you. So that's the type of ruler that he was. So now, if you look at Herod as somebody that dealt with everything by the sword, and then you look at Jesus, who began his life in the most humble and the most, uh, you know, uh, the, the lowest part of this, again, socioeconomic scale that you could, there is a huge difference between these two people. And Jesus really followed that through his whole life. You know, from the time he was born in the most humble of beginnings, he lived in a humble way. He was a carpenter. He, he worked very uh, diligently and quietly, uh, as the scripture you know, skips a lot of years in, in recording what he did. And then, of course, finished uh, with a, a tremendous ministry and, and tremendous teachings and messages that we use even here today. So what I've, I guess want to really talk about first in this difference between these two contrasts in this second chapter of Matthew is, is that King Herod, so now picture him as the poster boy of, of, uh, of, of the love of power, let's call it. And then he believed that everything that in his life he's measured by uh, what he has in uh, material items, how, who, he's, who he maintains power over, uh, people that he can uh, get to do what he wants when he wants to do it. And all of that, I believe, is sourced from a very deep sin of pride. I think pride is something that consumes all people who lust for power. And there are a lot of people in this world today who suffer from this. Now, just think about our world today. This is, you know, however long ago that it was. And since that time to now, we've had over and over and over, history is marked with people who lust for power. And that's because of their own pride, because of their own ambition, because of things that are selfish for them. And that can be from everyone from, you know, uh, starting in, in most modern times would be Adolf Hitler, you could say. But even today, look at the Middle East. ISIS, this group that's out uh, basically uh, trying to 
take over anything that they can take over through any method possible. It's all about power at its core. They want power. They want power over anyone that they can have it over. Then right there in the same region in the Middle East is uh, is Assad, the leader of, or, uh, you know, he's, I guess if you want to call him a leader, he's in, a, in Syria trying to hold on to power. And Russia's helping him do that. They're, they're, they're assisting him, and they are doing it. Why do you think the government of Russia and the leader of Russia, Vladimir Putin, is doing that? He's doing that for power. Look at the uh, other part of the globe, North Korea. North Korea, the leader of North Korea, does everything that he does every day of the week when he gets up, he and his cronies, I'd say, for power. That's why they do it. There's a, a figure that we just lost to death uh, in Cuba recently. For 50-plus years, his entire life was based on what? Say that. Power. That's all he wanted. He wanted power over every circumstance, every person, everything. And he would do anything that he needed to do to keep it, to protect it, and to acquire it. That's what he did. So this is not a new concept, and it's not something that has been retired into the pages of history. It is something that is still active, as I just outlined, very active here today. So now, how much we love as individuals or as nations or as churches or as businesses, how much we have a love for power is determined by three things, I think, that I have looked at. One is, what will we do, what are we willing to do to get it, to get power? What will we do to keep it? And then when we have it, how do we use it and what do we do with it? So if you learn, look at, at Herod and what he did, he wanted to be king. In fact, he bought the opportunity with, with, with currency to, to be king of the Jews. And he actually fought a war to protect it. And he ruled in the, uh, in the area that he was given by the, the, the Romans. To, uh, to rule for 35 years. He was viewed and uh, thought of as a, uh, in, in terms of his, uh, what they called him was Herod the Great. Now, I don't know about anyone here, but if, if, if you guys want to call me Billy the Great, I'm going to ask you not to do that. Because I think anybody that's satisfied or is comfortable with somebody adding to the end of their name, the Great, right there tells you a lot. Now, I know that's a historical reference to him, but I don't really know how great he was. There were some things he did that were okay. He kept the area safe for the most part, kept uh, people safe, unless they crossed him. And if they crossed him, then they were not safe. Now, he built the temple, rebuilt the temple, did some things there that were initiated, some things there that were good. But mostly what he was known for was being a tyrannical leader. And if you look at a person who's willing to do some of the things that are in the figures that are on the world stage today or in, in Herod, you will do, if you have an absolute desire for power, you will do some ungodly things. I want to just let you think about that for a minute. If you have a desire, not that, again, I want you to also remember this, I'm going to talk about it in a second. You don't have to be a nation state or a leader of a country. or a, you know, This is not about politics. You can have a desire and a lust and a and a pride and a desire to acquire and maintain power in your friendships. Just people that you know as friends. I'm not talking about anyone specifically here, but I want to provoke thought in this matter. 
Because you can do that as a person that works in a, any employment scenario. You can do that amongst friends. You can do that amongst people in your church. Hello? Wouldn't be the first time, and it wouldn't be the last time. But certain people, whomever they might be, think about things in that sense. And they may not think about it like they're a tyrannical dictator like, like Fidel Castro may have been or like Herod may have been. But there's, there's still a, a desire for some type of power. And that's sort of a kernel of what I want to get to in this thought that as I looked at this and was looking at, at what Herod was compared to what we have in Jesus. So now again, I'm talking now about that. So if you look at Herod, again, things he did, I've got a list of things. He, he murdered his wife. He murdered his sons. This is a guy who anybody that threatened his power, and he thought in those cases, in those particular cases they did, he killed them. That's what he did. He'll do ungodly things. In fact, there's a, a history records that Caesar Augustus at one time said it would be safer to be a pig in the house of Herod than to be his son. Because he wouldn't kill pigs and eat them. But yet he would do all five types of other things. You know why he wouldn't you know, kill the pigs? They didn't threaten his power. They weren't a threat to him. Everything else was. So now against this whole backdrop of what I've said about we're trying to describe this, this idea of King Herod. When these wise men came in and they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? How do you think Herod received that? <laughs> he was king of the Jews, as far as he was concerned, what he thought. That's what he believed. So now what we've got is a situation where he's now on the defensive, thinking, well, uh, I thought I was king of the Jews, but I'm not going to say that. I'm going to try to do this. So this love of power that Herod had is something that creates the same thing in our lives. And again, I want you to try to follow me through this if possible. Something that's, you know, that I thought about a lot this week, about even in the most small areas of our lives. These are things that you will find if you have any desire to acquire, maintain, or protect power at any level in your life. One is it's going to destroy the peace that you can have. You can't have peace if you are a person that is always trying to protect or acquire or demonstrate your power of this can be husbands over wives, wives over husbands, husbands over families over children, over others. This is not something that applies to just to the top uh, people in, in, in nations or in politics, as I said earlier. And so as I look at what verse 3 says, when he heard where is he that is born king of the Jews, that said the word trouble. That word also is expanded in many other translations where it was disturbed is the term, a word that's used. Deeply disturbed is another term that is used in translation. There's a Greek translation of that word where it actually says that that would mean that there's visible shaking. That that would be the, the translation of what that word troubled is in the ESV that there's a visible shaking. So when he was told, where is king of the Jews? It rocked his world at that point. It made him very concerned. So when he or a person like him gets in that, in that mode, something is going to happen to the people that he is concerned about, that he is living in fear of. And that's what happens 
you cannot, if, you, if that is your approach to always trying to be on top or trying to exercise power or acquire power, you're not going to be able to live in peace. Herod and people like him never were able to live in peace because the love of seeking that and the lust of that and the sin that's involved in that, the pride that's involved in that, is always, always going to work out to where you are going to be unsettled. You're not going to have a peace in your heart. You won't be able to. The other thing it does is it distorts and clouds your judgment. You can't think clearly on things. If you look at what he had when he when he was when he was made aware of this, the first thing he did is he brought together all of the, the Sanhedrin and the people that were the, the scholars of the day to ask them, is this true? Is this what it is? Because he knew about the prophecy, and they indicated that it was. It was said in the in the verses that we read, they pointed him back to the prophet in, the, in Micah, where it's written uh, in chapter 5, that which is recounted there in, in chapter 2 of Matthew. I think we had that. You can read that. That's the verse that it is. That was the prophecy that was being fulfilled. They told him that it was, and that even concerned him even more. So now he's getting caught up in so much of being worried about what this is going to do to his power, he couldn't see this as a benefit to him, that Jesus, that the Messiah is coming. He saw it as a threat to him. So what did he do? Because he didn't know how to pinpoint him and find him specifically, even though he asked the men to do that, what happened is he decided to kill all of the babies in his territory that could be found that were infant babies. Now think about it, what would be required of somebody to be so desperate for power that you'd be willing to do that. To kill anyone, but to kill all the babies that were infant babies and wreck all of the families and all of their lives, that's what he was willing to do. It, the, the, the consumption of this idea of power in our lives, if it's important to us, is something that can cloud our judgment. It may not cloud our judgment where we're going to want to go execute infants. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it will cloud your judgment and it will make you make bad decisions. It will make you you know, have something in your life that you're going to look at that's not going to be the decision that you wanted to make. And so, and the last thing is, is that if you are going to be consumed with this love of power at whatever level that it is, it's going to take a toll on you. It's going to take a toll on your life. And so, as a result of all of these things that Herod was doing and consumed with this, uh, this idea of absolute power, he missed Jesus, and he only thought of things in the way that the world sees them. That's another important point for us, is that he saw things only as the world sees it because he saw it in his own selfish way. That's what Herod wanted to do. He wanted to protect himself. Now we're not talking about power here. Okay, we're talking about our own individual. I'm not talking about anyone specifically other than myself. He dealt with selfishness. He dealt with what's best for me, what's best for my family, what's best for those around me. This is what I'm concerned about. I'm going to protect my turf. I'm going to protect my home. I'm going to protect my people. I'm not going to worry about anything else. That's the, that's the thought and the viewpoint of the world. That's not a view of a spiritual outlook toward things. And so I want to just say this, and I just want to say it as clearly as I can. Just make no mistake, this world that we live in here is very starkly contrasted, just like it is between the life of Herod the Great and Jesus Christ. And that is this. Our world is comprised of 
one side that is of darkness. And there's one side that is of light. There is a side of this world that is consumed and, and operated by the idea of, of what Satan wants to accomplish in this world. There's a devil out there, and he's working, and he's active. And then there's a side of a Savior, of a Jesus-saving Savior, just that the name of Jesus can bring so much power into our lives. Those are the contrasts in the world we live in today, in 2016. One is, it's it's even more stark than that, one is death and takes you to a certain death and a permanent death. And one is life that takes you to a permanent life, to an eternal life. That's the world we live in. That's the contrast. It's darkness. It's light. It's Satan. It's Jesus. It's eternal life or eternal death. That's what we have. That's what we're dealing with. And as we look at our lives and how we approach anything that has selfishness or pride or the idea of exercising power, For the love of that is something that will cost us in our personal life. It will eat away at us just a piece at a time is what it does. It just takes it away, just takes little chunks away from you. And then it clouds your judgment. You can't make clear decisions. You don't have a clear head. And it can't let you, you cannot live in peace. You cannot live in peace when you live in that mode of power-seeking selfishness all about me kind of life. So, the next thing about this contrast of things is that I've talked a lot that I feel like I'm just throwing a big wet blanket on everything here because I'm not trying to. But it's something that really came into me. I mean, you, you, when you look at this, you cannot do things that put you in the wrong place, thinking about the wrong things, being in the wrong world, living in the wrong world. You have to live in the other world that I was talking about. And then in, in Matthew uh, six twenty four, I think I gave you guys this one. I mean, it says here in uh, in, in in Matthew six twenty four that you can't serve two masters. You can't do that. So no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve. The word of God says you cannot serve. God and money, and I take money to be or power, or selfish desires, or things that we want to do, or things that are all about us, or that are more important to us. You can't do that. I can't try to exercise that I'm smarter than this person, or that I'm better than this person, or that I know more about the scripture than this person, or that I'm going to, you know, wield my power in, in a church, or in a business, or anywhere that is. You can't live like that, because if you do it, it's easy. It takes away at you. All, all this is done to to, uh, to to come to a common point. I mean, all it is really that we're talking about is sin. It's just a particular type of sin I'm talking about tonight. But it's something I encounter this. Maybe, maybe none of you do. I can't believe that if that's the case. But I encounter this almost every day of my life. Almost every day. I encounter this at a line at a grocery store. I've encountered this. People trying to take... And I've also encountered in the lines in a grocery store people uh, demonstrating the heart of a, of a servant and saying, oh, you know, why don't you go ahead in front of me? 
You know, I've seen people, Joyce Meyer tells a great story about be the person that takes the shopping cart back. Has anybody ever heard her say that? Or what's that? She's the person that says, if you see the shopping cart in the parking lot, be the one. And you know what? Ever since I heard that message that she preached on that, I have done it. I have done it. I have walked across. I never did it before. But it wasn't because I didn't want to or I was trying to. It was because I was consumed with what I was thinking about. My time. What's important to me? I got to get home. I got to get my car. I got things to do. I'll let somebody else deal with that. But no, now I'm walking all the way back over while people are looking at me like, why are you walking back over there? And I, I don't do it, so I just, I guess, feel good about myself. I just felt like it was something that convicted me, and I felt like that was the right thing to do. Because maybe it's just in my mind, I'm trying to set my mind to a point where things that are important to me are not what I'm focused on. He's worried about the guy that has to go collect all these things. Or the guy whose car that gets hit because the cart gets blown by the wind and goes blows into their car. Let's think about them. So that's actually a good example. She did a that was a that made a difference to me. So I just want to talk then very quickly about the love of the, the things that, that Herod had and the in the power uh, lust that he had. But now let's talk about this. This is the good news, and that's the power of love that Jesus brought. When the love of power, this is important, listen to this. When the love of power is demonstrated, it is the way of the world. So the love of power and all that it is, acquiring it, protecting it, maintaining it, seeking it, that's the way of the world and the way of just basically human nature. But God has a better plan for us as Christ followers as to what we should do. And that's the love of power carries with it all these dangerous things, but the power of love brings all types of other things together. It brings people together. It brings people in solidarity and working towards one thing, which is living for him and representing him and being the light in a dark world and doing things that are encouraging to one another and lifting each other up instead of being a part of things that don't accomplish that. And that's what that, that's what that could do. So instead of things that are going to destroy lives or tear people apart or, or separate people from one another, we can do things that bring people together. And one of the things is is that if you look at what the uh, if you look at what the, the wise men did when they came in, one of the things that just always has appealed to me, particularly in looking at this, when the wise men came in and saw this baby, they didn't just rejoice. If you look at the, what the Word of God says, and if you look at the various translations, and if you study that scripture, it says, and, and Pastor referred to this on Sunday, it was not just a joy like, "Wow, we found him! This is great." It was an overwhelming, exceedingly abundant joy that they found. And why was it? Because they finally got to the end of their, uh, you know, their journey, and they found the right place. No, that's not why. Their joy was so great and so amazing. It was overwhelming to them. I believe it was so overwhelming. I think it just just rolled over them like a like a wave of just absolute joy that we can't even imagine because they knew they were in the presence of the King. That's why it was so exciting to them. It wasn't because they were they had accomplished it or they did whatever they did. They knew they were in the presence of it. They experienced that. 
They experience that in their lives directly by being in the presence of a baby, but they knew that he was the king. So when when they when the, when the wise men did this, I always ask you know myself this question: Why did they rejoice? Because they saw this baby representing everything that God the Father for all of his children. Perfect, pure, absolute love and a plan that he had to save the whole world. They didn't know all of that. They didn't know how that was all going to play out. But they experienced that. It was so present. Have you ever been around the altar here or just been in your seat at worship when you just feel the power of God just coming over you and you just feel that coming over you almost like a wave, like you can just feel the presence of the Lord just warming through your body? If that makes any sense, I don't mean to be too uh, too descriptive of that because everyone has their own way of that happening. But that's happened to me numerous times where it's like a just almost like somebody's pouring a warm a bucket of water over me and it just comes right down from the top of my head and it goes all the way through my body. I felt that. And that's an experience that I believe those wise men had when they came in. That's why they were overwhelmingly abundantly cannot believe the joy that they had. And not only did they do that, see, they came in and they realized that what, what even we experience today with all the religions and all the people competing for uh, for space out there in the minds of the world, of all the people in the world and all the religions in the world, there was only one God that in any book that I've read, and if there's another one, somebody, please let me know. I want to know what it is. Who took the step to say what it said in John three sixteen, and that is that God, whoever it is, our God, the one true God, he so loved the world that he gave, he gave, his only son. He gave, I know that's a verse we've heard so many times, but can you hear it enough? Can we hear that enough? God gave his only son. What other religion that you could try to believe in has anything like that? That there's a God that loves you so much that he is not willing to do it, but he did it. He sent his only son. And we know the rest of it. So at the right time, He sent his son to fulfill the plan that he had. So, again, the wise men experienced that. They saw all of that. The desire that God the Father has for each and every one of us and everyone we know and everyone in this world, no matter who they are, no matter what their circumstances, the desire that he has is for them to appreciate and experience not the love of power and all that we think that that represents, fame, money, the accoutrements of power. But he wants everybody to experience the power of love that's contained in that manger, in that stable, that was born so pure in the day day of Jesus and that was fulfilled 33 years later when he finished it. So, there's a few other things I had here that my thoughts were on this that I'm going to probably just skip over now, but I did want to say this one thing in closing that I think sort of just wraps this up. And really, I probably could have just come up here and just said that. <laughs> I think it just, it may have, it would have been, you know, 10 minutes instead of 30 minutes. 
want you to see what I just how I saw the difference between all of us. Just the big, big contrast between this idea and power. I want you to take away of nothing else. Remember what that is, even as simple as a shopping cart or whatever it is. There's power is not something that is just sought after and looked for in the highest levels of politics or governments or nations. It's done with individuals and their families and in their friendships and in their businesses. That's where I did one-on-one. There's people that struggle with trying to obtain power over others. I've done it. I've been that way. I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that way anymore. I don't want to have any time where I ever could even be thought of to be be legitimately accused of that. But I could have have been legitimately accused of it in the past. In years past, I, I know that I, not in a malicious way even, but in a way that it was just my nature. It's the, it, was, it was the world tugging at me. It was that darkness trying to pull me that way instead of me leaning more toward the light that I described before. It's, the, it's Satan versus Jesus. <laughs> it's, a, it's a thing that we struggle with. And so that's, I want to make sure you understood the, the context of what I was trying to share there. But the other thing is, is when the wise men came down, another thing that is so, has always been real powerful to me, but I think has become more powerful to me in the last few days than ever before, is how it says they fell down in worship. They fell down and worshiped him. And I just don't think there's ever a time that we can fully and there's a lot of ways to express worship. Pastors talk about that, what, our, what is our true spiritual worship. But there is no way, no possible way, that you can ever express all that you feel for your relationship with Christ until you've done that. Until you've fallen down in His presence. And fallen down humbly. And I don't mean in a literal sense, but, I, but in some ways I do. But it's not about the literal thing of falling down. It's about that humility of it all. It's about that giving it all. I felt that way Sunday morning. The song that they were singing was uh, Give Yourself Away. Yeah, I want to give myself away so you can use me. And I just felt like coming to the altar and just falling down on my knees and raising my hands and just saying, that's it. That's all I want. I want that. I want that. And I just fell down to worship him and just let his presence come flowing down. I didn't have to do much else but just be a receiver of what he wanted to do. And it was so powerful and it was so great. And that's what I mean. Just there's times. It could be at your house. It doesn't have to be in church. It could be anywhere. But falling down before him and just laying it all out there and just giving it all to him and surrendering it all to him. And it's not easy in this world we live in. But when you do it, he responds and he delivers things into our lives that we can't even comprehend at this point until we do it, until we continue to do it, until we do it as much as it, that, that ourselves will allow us to fall down and worship him. And that's what the wise men did that were so powerful. They came in and they just fell down before him. There's a story I was going to not tell. I'm going to tell it really quick. There's a slide that I have in my family here. And this lady's name is Stephanie Decker. I don't know if anyone's ever heard this story about what happened or not. But this is her and her lovely children and husband and her family. Stephanie Decker was in Indiana. 
and there was a tornado that was coming through, and she was hearing the forecast, and, and it was coming and tracking right on their path. And so she did what everybody knows to do and, and gathered her family and took them down to the basement to the lowest point that they had. And what she wound up doing was she grabbed a, 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 a comforter from their bed and took those two small children that you see there and she wrapped them in that comforter in that basement and laid on top of them while the tornado came through. And she just covered them with her arms and she wrapped that around them and she was there protecting them, and the tornado actually did come and hit their home. And at the end of it, when it hit their home, the children were safe. The children were alive. The children were saved as a result of what she did. She was also alive, was the good news. Unfortunately, the debris and things that had fallen from where the tornado had collapsed the house had fallen on her legs and it damaged them where they could not be saved or repaired and she had to have both legs amputated as a result of it. So she's a double amputee today and this picture she is as well, living with these children that she saved because of what she did. And when I heard that story, I I thought about it and I thought about if a tornado is that lust for power and that sin that we have, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a lust for power. It can be anything. That's a big, fat obstacle sitting in your life right now. Something that's just there and it's a struggle. And you can't shake it. You can't deal with it. You can't get rid of it. That sin is a tornado coming through our life, wrecking everything that it can wreck, destroying everything around it. It can destroy your friends. It can destroy your family. It can destroy your home. It can destroy your job. It can. You know people it's happened to. Maybe it happened to you at some point. It's not to mean that it can't be rebuilt now. I'm not saying that. But sin can wreck your life. Sin can be a tornado that just sweeps right through and wrecks everything around it. Destroys it. That's what sin does. It's the nature of sin. So here it is, this tornado coming through. And the way I look at it is when I heard the story about how she, she took this comforter and she wrapped it around her children. I just thought about Jesus and what he did for me. What he did for me, and I know what he's done for you, where he just took that comforter. He is a comforter. And he just wrapped it around me and around my life. And he laid there on top of me, protecting me from this tornado of sin that wanted to destroy me. It did a good job of trying to. It did some things that hurt me. And that did some things that that I wish that it hadn't have done. But I'll tell you what, in the end, I rose victorious because he wrapped his arms around me and he came on top of me and protected me and said, Billy, I got you right now. Even when it's tough, I've got you. And this tornado of sin is going to go right over and it's going to wreck a lot of things in his path, but it's not going to hurt you because I've got you. And I feel like Jesus is just the same to us as his mother was to those children instinctively. Because we're his children. And that's what he wants for us. He wants to protect us and shield us and keep us from all of these things that want to wreck our lives. And this power that we want to seek in whatever form that it is. Where it just tries to take things away from us every little chunk, every little day. It clouds our judgment. It makes us not be able to live in peace. We have to live in stress. That's what it does. 
But he can protect us if we would just let him, if we would just embrace it and live in that experience that he wants for us. He can do that for you. Now, if you're here tonight, probably your walk with Christ, everybody's probably a little bit different. But most of you that are here this evening, I don't know about everyone, but most of you that are here this evening maybe are pretty mature in your life with Christ. But does that mean for all of you that are mature in your faith that you don't struggle? Is there anyone here that doesn't have struggles in their life? Please raise their hand. Now, that is a serious question. I'm going to ask it again. Is there anyone that doesn't have struggles in their life? If so, and I'm not meaning this facetiously, this is a serious question, would you please raise your hand? Right. I'm raising mine. Not because I don't have struggles. Because my hand would be here. Because I've got them. You've got them. They're all different different levels, different things, it doesn't matter. But here's the good news. Like this mom went to protect her children, you've got a Jesus who is the opposite of everything that is a lust for power and a desire for sin and selfishness and all those things that loves you and will protect you and put his arms around you and hover over you and protect you in the tornadoes of sin and the tornadoes of things that the enemy has designed for your destruction. He can protect you from it and bring you out of it alive. You might be battered a little bit, but that's okay because we have an eternal destiny that corrects all of it. How different would it have been if the wise men ignored what the Lord was speaking to them about? And said, well, we've seen the king and we're happy and yeah, we believe he's the king. But you know what? We don't want Herod chasing us. We don't want this madman coming out trying to kill us and settle the scores like he does with everybody else. Let's just go tell him. Let's just go tell him. What would the history be if they would have done that? Instead of responding to the leading of the Lord that they had in a dream and realizing that that is the king. That yes, he's in a manger, or yes, he's in dire circumstances, or yes, he was born and he's not in a palace, and he doesn't have the finest clothes or garments, and he doesn't have all of the the wonderful things around him, and the best food, and the best people, and, and all of the best servants to take care of him. He doesn't have all that. But I know because I've been in the presence of him. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I know that. And I know whatever dream that it is that I have, that I've been led to believe that and embrace it, and we're going to walk away knowing that he's going to take care of us. I believe that's what they thought. They had to be concerned about Herod a little bit. This guy had a reputation. But they weren't in fear of that. They didn't live like that. And just in closing, the last thing I want to say tonight is this. That, you know, Jesus, God sent his son, as I said earlier, he sent him sent for me. Voluntarily did that. And you know Jesus had so many times in his life because he was fully man when he was here on this earth. You realize that, right? He was fully man. He lived by design. He lived by purpose. That's why he was born the way he was born. That's why he lived his life the way he lived it. He suffered temptation just like we all do. He did all that. He was one of us. 
And you know, there had to be times. I just, I mean, I have to think. I know. You said, well, no, he was God. He could overcome it. No, he was fully man. He had to have these things going in his head about, look, I'm the son of God. I can, as he said to Pilate, I can call down legions of angels if I want to. He knew he could do it. (laughs) He knew he could do it. But he didn't. Because he loved what his mission was, and he loved the purpose and the will of his father so much that he was going to do whatever it was that was required. There's a song, and it's so much as an Easter song, but I'm going to just share it with you tonight about, and it just it's meant so much to me. It's been so impressed upon me. Jesus. And all that he is and all we know him to be could have come as a king, the king of kings. He could have come to this earth. And at any moment as he walked on this earth, he could have said, you know what? Enough of this. I'm king, Jesus. I'm the son of God seated at the right hand of the Father. I don't need to take this anymore. I'm going to do what I want to do right now. He could have done that. Do you not think that those thoughts had to be in his mind? I mean, the scripture, I think, clearly says it about it. How much? I think it was probably a lot more than, than what we would know. But yet, his discipline and his life was so committed to the will of the Father that he wouldn't allow that to happen. So this song says, there's words that I want to just read this chorus of this song, this, this, this little part here. And this is the word, and again, it's an Easter song, but hey, it's, it's, a, it's a song that has such powerful meaning. And it had some to me, and I hope that I can share it with you tonight and let it mean something to you. And it says this in the chorus, it took a lamb. Every time I see this, it just really is something so powerful to me because of, it just so much personifies who he is to me and, and, and in my life. It took a lamb. To die upon a rugged cross. It took a lamb whose only blood could pay the cost. Nothing less could take away my sin. And that is why the great I am didn't come as a king. Because he knew that it took a lamb. And that's why we call him the Lamb of God. Because that's who he is. He's the Lamb of God, slain for our sin and everything that we've done. And He's here to protect us, and He's here to love us, and He's here to nurture us, and He's here to bring us along. And it doesn't matter what you're struggling with, because everybody in here has answered the question in the affirmative that we're all struggling with something. We're all broken. That's okay. He's here to help. He's the helper. He left his helper in the Holy Spirit, but Jesus Christ in his person is here in this place. And he is here to deal with whatever you're struggling with in a way that's going to bring you through that tornado with his protection and his covering. It doesn't matter what it is. There's nothing out of his reach. There's nothing out of his reach. Play that song for me, will you? As we close, I'd like you to just take four minutes. Just listen to this and press it into the, the words that we have. There it is.
that's the contrast between all the things of the world and the things that he offers. Because he could have come as a king. You need to get that. He could have come as a king. But he knew that it took a lamb. It took a lamb to get to cover all of our sin, to cover all of the things that we struggle with, to cover us up in that comforter and, and protect us when that tornado wants to come through and just blow everything away in our life and make no mistake. There are forces out there that want to do that. There are forces that are unseen, the Word of God says very clearly. We battle them every day. Now, the good news is, is we know the outcome. But we have to do that battle. And we have to understand that every day we can look and say, you know what? This is my Jesus who could have come as a king. But he knew. He knew that it took a lamb that he was willing to do that for us. And if he's willing to do that for us, what else would he withhold from us who believe him, follow him, or obedient to him and love him? What might he withhold from us if he's willing to do that? Nothing. There's nothing he wants you to live in that fullness and everything that he has for you. So I just hope tonight that that's been something that encourages you and something a little, little longer than I thought, and I apologize for that. But I do want you to, to know that as we come into this Christmas season, that we have a God who loves us. We have a God who wants the best for us. And that's why he did what he did, and that's why he didn't come as a king. Even though he was the king, and the wise men that were there knew he was the king. They saw it. They felt it. They rejoiced. They fell down. They worshipped him. But he was the king, but he didn't come as a king. He came as a little baby born in a stable and rose to the most influential character and the scene of history and changed the world through his mighty, mighty sacrifice. But he knew that it took a lamb, and that's why we call him the Lamb of God, and that's what's so powerful about what and who he is. And as we start seeing ourselves as he sees us, that he's willing to do all that, man, if we could just see him, see ourselves the way he sees us, that he's willing to do that, things start coming into perspective. Our judgment does get better. Those things that are attacking and tearing out pieces of our lives are, are suddenly start going away. And we can live in peace and not in stress. Those are the things I hope that will just encourage you and be with you tonight. God bless you. I love you. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share some of those thoughts with you tonight. I'll turn it back over to the pastor at this point. So God bless you and Merry Christmas.